Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. Commencing Operation Snake Eater. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm Brian. Hi. Today's episode is Only Room for One Snake, our second episode on 2004's Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Today, we will dive into the unrealized Big Boss, aka Naked Snake, and his support staff for Operation Snake Eater. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. Today we're going to kick off Operation Snake Eater, first by looking at Snake's new mission and team. Snake, let's go over your mission objectives one more time. Rescue Sokolov. Find out what's happened to the Shagahod, then destroy it. And finally, eliminate the boss. Eliminate the boss. This mission will be codenamed Operation Snake Eater. After the events of the Virtuous Mission, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev accused President Lyndon Johnson and America for the nuclear blast at Sokolov's research facility. It was done by an American warhead and an American aircraft, the one that deposited Snake in Selino-Yarsk, was caught on radar at the time. I just want to say real quick that those are real people. Oh, yes. <laughs> Khrushchev and Lyndon Johnson are real people, in case people don't know. Yes. No, I think it's worth pointing out that they are, in fact, very real presidents going through real political turmoil at this time, both independently and, well, obviously not over the events of Virtuous Mission, which did not happen in the real world. But you have to assume there was, they, they probably had some sort of conversation about some sort of covert missions trying to... Yeah, I'm sure there was yeah. all sorts of under-the-table... Yeah discussion. So, Johnson claims these were the unilateral actions of the boss, and that she and her Cobra unit had defected to join with Colonel Volgan, a backer of Khrushchev's opposition, the Brezhnev faction. Again, a real faction. <laughs> yes, very real. Uh, Khrushchev, skeptical, says he will need proof for the Red Army. They're already on secondary alert and ready to strike back at the U.S. for this nuclear attack. What Khrushchev requires is the death of the boss, Oh, and Volgan at American hands. The week following Virtuous Mission hasn't been much better for Snake. He's still recovering from major injuries, and he's being held by the CIA top brass, who think he and Zero may be traitors or accomplices to the boss. Snake will have to prove his loyalty as well, and thus the mission parameters for Operation Snake Eater are laid out. Rescue Sokolov, eliminate the Cobra unit, eliminate Volgan, destroy the Shagohad, and kill the boss. But because we want to track what's really going on beneath the surface, what's seen and unseen, we know that both Virtuous Mission and Operation Snake Eater are part of a larger plot by the boss and Zero to acquire the Philosopher's Legacy, which we'll get into detail much later, but for now it's just a shitload of money, like nation-building money. Virtuous Mission was just meant to plant the boss and her cobras near Volgan, the suspected custodian of the legacy. However, his impromptu nuclear blast turned that original plan to shit and pushed the world to nuclear war, so Operation Snake Eater was devised, again mainly by Boss and Zero, so that the legacy could still be obtained and all-out war be avoided. While we're here, we can take a minute to discuss the name Snake Eater itself. In the story, this name comes from the fact that Snake will have to take down the Cobra unit with Eater implying you are going to consume them in some fashion. More on this from Brian in our Cobra unit episode. And of course, there's the whole joke that Snake will have to subsist on snakes in the jungle. Metal Gear Solid 3 subsistence. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the more thematic meaning invokes the snake eating itself, the Ouroboros, i.e. the infinity sign. Metal Gear Solid depicts the same battle constantly playing over and over, or in other words, endless warfare. Words that literally appear on the screen in Metal Gear Solid 5. Some boss rises up to threaten the world, and a snake rises up to strike them down. We've seen it over and over. Boss versus Naked Snake, and Big Boss versus Solid Snake, and Solid versus Liquid Snake, and Raiden versus Solidus Snake. It, it never stops. The snake eats itself to no end. 
And though we're theoretically at the genesis of our narrative in MGS3, it's implied that this was happening before, too, with the boss and the sorrow. Now, that never-ending loop isn't just a narrative one about forever war. It's also a commentary on the video game series itself. Each time, Kojima and company have to create another boss so that another snake can defeat them, and ditto for our player experience. Where MGS2 looked at the meme of the sequel, MGS3 starts to look at media ad infinitum, where content has no end. Does this seem at all like where we're at now? When's the next Marvel movie coming out? Two months? One month? Sorry for that digression, but I really love the name used because Snake Eater seems like peak Kojima brain. Something silly sounding to its core, but in the end it turns out to be a thoughtful and even evocative consideration. And while those are mission parameters, let's meet Snake's team. Properly this time. But I mean, we should start with Snake himself. This is Snake. Do you read me? So Naked Snake, once again voiced by David Hayter. Naked Snake, a.k.a. Jack or John, is of course Big Boss, the big bad of the first two MSX games and then the shadow hanging over Metal Gear Solid's 1 and 2. We aren't going to cover the entire story of Big Boss here. We'll set up Jack heading into the events of MGS3, but also call out anything here that will be relevant for future games and discussions. If you recall from last time, MGS3 was never explicitly advertised as the story of Big Boss, though it was a popular theory at the time. During a call with Paramedic, Snake says his name is John Doe. We know that his first name is accurate, and we get no other indication about his last name, so that's what we're rolling with. The John Doe aspect can refer to the namelessness of the man who would become Big Boss, a title that surpasses the need for a proper name. It could refer to the countless men who are sucked up and pulverized by the war economy, no longer individuals but a statistic, devoid of a name. A name means nothing on the battlefield, after all. And just to clarify, uh, in case someone doesn't know, like, because I, I know there's people from other countries who listen to this, uh, John Doe is what the name the American police use to refer to unknown bodies that's that's so if you're if you were a body who's discovered and they don't they can't immediately identify you you're you're literally listed in the database as john doe number whatever so and the jane doe is the female equivalent but i actually think i i never knew how to read him calling himself john doe because i never knew if that's supposed to be him and paramedics weird humor but like it would it would be kind of a on the nose funny kojima thing to, to have him be actually named john doe I think I think that it's like a cool, smart thing he's saying and not like a name that Americans are intensely familiar with. Right, exactly. Like he might he might be like, my name is John Cardholder, John Sample, John American, John American. That's my name. No, I'm glad you pointed that out because I guess I don't realize that we do have international listeners. We're like the number 10 video game podcast in Italy right now. So, yeah. Um, <clears throat> No, I appreciate that. And also, just like in previous MGS games, it's a mechanism for projecting the gamer into the story. Snake is a blank, nameless person that allows the player to self-insert in accordance with the Metal Gear tradition. The Jack John thing may also just be a shout-out to Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan, who is also legally named John. We know Kojima is a fan of those 90s movies, at least. Also John Rambo. There you go. The name of Snake, of course, is just Kojima carrying on the meme of his initial hero. Shocking that he would do that. But it actually works both ways because narratively, it becomes Solid Snake who carries on the meme of the name Snake from Big Boss. It gets some added meaning in this game, though. Snake is the son of the boss, just like the Cobras, making him a snake or serpent of some sort. And in a major change in gameplay style, this game is where you start spending most of the time laying on your belly and crawling everywhere, relying on camouflage to evade an attack. And I guess if you're worried about surveilled communications, the word snake in a jungle is not going to stand out as specifically portentous. The naked portion of the moniker is stated in-game to refer to snake going in with weapons and equipment OSP, of course, but it could also be... It could also be after the hoopla and controversy of MGS2, Snake Eater represents a more stripped-down game, back to the basics with stealth maps, innovative bosses, and a complex spy story. No shade on 2, of course, but truly it is the most singular concept in the series. Visually, Naked Snake is intended to be broader and bulkier than Solid Snake, uh, more like the Arnold Schwarzenegger in Predator. 
but otherwise being mostly the same character model to the point you may think it is Solid Snake, which again, I did. He would get his famous eye patch during the course of this game, which Big Boss had always been de- depicted with since the MSX games, um, probably an homage to both Snake Plissken and maybe Dr. Sherizawa from the original Godzilla as well. Snake's outfit here is reminiscent of both the original Solid Snake art designs from those MSX games, as well as Iroquois Plissken, aka Solid Snake's outfit from the Big Shell incident. In fact, the Plissken character model was used in early MGS3 prototypes. Before we get too far into like his character history, one of the things I think really works with kind of swapping the same, it's the same, like, I think a lot of people, I remember thinking it was the same guy before I played Metal Gear because I didn't know what was going on with Metal Gear. What really works with it is it it um, allows you to, and this is something we'll get into over the course of the whole thing. I think it's it's I think the, the what makes Snake Eater great is it um it it allows you to all the things you like about Solid Snake. It's like oh there he is, same guy, but without a lot of the really dark, kind of hard to parse baggage that that Solid Snake has. Naked Snake is more just kind of a guy, like he doesn't really have this dark complicated backstory and the genius of of so it lets you identify with him and like him and identify and like kind of place yourself in his shoes a little more and the great thing that snake eater does is it's it very slowly and kind of before you realize it creates that dark tragic backstory for him and ends up just kind of obliterating him as that cool character you liked and really just like renders him and almost completely impotent because like he's much more he's I would say he's much more naturally flirty than David than, than David than Solid Snake. Mm-hmm. Like he actually is trying to flirt with with, with Paramedic all the time, mm-hmm. and like it turns him into just like a husk almost. Like he's much more he's much more competent and like more human than than Solid Snake at the start, and then the game just obliterates him. And I really think that's the way the game is scripted. It's it's like the thing that makes it stand out to me. No, I think that's good. <laughs> that's something I'm gonna be I'm gonna be pointing out a lot, especially when we get like into with Eva and the boss and the end of the game. I think that's what I'm gonna really be focusing on. Yeah, for sure. I think the characters are the key to this game, and especially, of course, Snake's characterization. Jar Jar's the key to all of this. It's like poetry, it rhymes. <laughs> well, I mean, that's actually what we're thinking about, right? Because Big Boss, as defined to us, has been a villain, but what they want to do is give kind of a tragic backstory to a character that we've more heard about his backstory than seen. Yeah. Um, But you actually want to come from a place where you understand the person that fell or at least see the emotions and turmoil and trauma he goes through to get to that point. Um, And I think that's what it's effectively setting up. And you can't really do that if uh, Naked Snake or Jack has all that baggage that Solid Snake has going into like MGS1 even. Um, because he's already like a fucked up alcoholic veteran by that game. Yeah. And that's the first that's where most people hopped on with Solid Snake with a ton of baggage. But again, in the tradition that this is the genesis, like explicitly the genesis of Metal Gear Solid, um, Snake at least comes in as more of a blank slate. He has a history, but it's not like you know, it's not Solid Snake's, you know, I'm a clone who's fought in many wars that murdered my own father. Yeah. Exactly. But he yeah, and he he's also just like warmer and funnier than mm-hmm. like I think this I think Hater has said this is his favorite performance, and it should be because he's just like a cool he's cool. Not to say that Solid Snake Solid Snake is also obviously cool, but like I would want to hang out with Naked Snake for most of the game. Solid Snake is kind of a downer. And I think if we want to get into that just a little bit, sorry, we're going to continue this digression, is it seems like Jack actually has or had some people in his life, Mm -hmm. and namely that's the boss. Um, And having that real human connection makes him a certain way, whereas when we meet Solid Snake, he really doesn't. He's living alone in Alaska, mushing, you know, huskies. And it's really that formation of a relationship with Otacon and then, you know, having some kind of catharsis with his previous friendship with Gray Fox. That's kind of allows him to, you know, kind of progress and become a little more human in MGS2 and 4. But um, here with big, you know, Jack, we're seeing someone who at least has some semblance of healthy relationships with some other people. It sounds like him and Zero had some, you know, relationship before. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that really might be the difference between how those two are portrayed is that one. And I think Kojima specifically said because he is not a clone, he wants him to have more of that uh, embodied personality of, you know, mm-hmm. a real person. Talks about movies with paramedic all the time and tells jokes and tries to have fun. 
even in the middle of a horrible war zone. And if you think about the fact that this is the game that introduced the eating and food system, and there's really nothing more human than talking about food, we're getting really existential here. But <laughs> just like he talks about movies with paramedic, he also talks about food with her. Because um, if you call her non-safe Kodak, um, she's the one who will tell you what instant noodles are about, you know, ramen. It's it's really cool. So even if Snake hasn't seen, I don't think he, I don't think there's a single movie that she talks about that he's actually seen. He shows interest in a lot of them. He's like, Oh, that sounds interesting. I mean, I'll check that out. Like mm-hmm. he has, he, he, there's evidence that he has an, out, uh, an interior life and that he has an exterior life that he has like things he wants to do. Right. Now, again, this is not by the end of the game that, uh, that seems to be completely dead. And then even in peace Walker, it seems like he's just kind of given up having a normal life. Yeah. I think that's the main, that's the main reason. It's why it's, he's the coolest one. He's the best. It's the best main character in the series. And one last touch point I want to get to with Naked Snake, because again, I'm a giant Marvel loser, is Big Boss is the mirror reflection of Nick Fury and uh, white Nick Fury, which was the one we had until the Ultimate Comics line landed. And of course, Samuel L. Jackson showed up at the end of Iron Man 1. But with the eye patch, cigar, military fatigues, Big Boss is very much the Nick Fury that debuted in May 1963. An expert in hand-to-hand combat, an expert marksman, and leader, but no powers or enhancements to speak of. We'll get into Snake's fictional history just briefly here. He was born in 1935, which makes him 29 at the time of Operation Snake Eater. He grew up around the military, was a camp rat, and then he became the boss's disciple in June 1950. They developed close quarters combat together, trained in espionage, survival, demolition, languages, and uh, Snake would come to view the boss as sort of a mother figure, mentor figure, uh, very complex, but ultimately he looked up to her as like the most important person in his life. Snake would go on to fight in the Korean War, He participated in the Bikini Atoll test, which was the first airborne detonation of the hydrogen bomb. Uh, Snake was the only member of his unit not to get seriously poisoned or cancer from that event, but he was rendered sterile. He would last see the boss on June 12, 1959, before she went away on her own mission. Um, And then Snake would go on to be a decorated Green Beret during the years prior to Virtuous Mission and Snake Eater. Getting into some of the themes and concepts with Snake, uh, we've mentioned several times that this is supposed to be the genesis of Metal Gear. So Snake, at some level, is a stand-in for the Garden of Eden Snake. Um, It's, you know, all about where it all began. Um, All previous Metal Gear titles before MGS3 were set in the near future, like after the time of the year of the release of the game. Uh, This is the first time that uh, Kojima and his team are going back in the narrative. So he's looking to, again, tell the genesis where it all began, uh, starting from square one or square zero, if you will. (laughs) And uh, we talked a lot already about Jack's personality here, um, but it is the fact that Kojima wanted to uh, have him be something a little more real than the human clone that is Solid Snake. And again, that's not really to bag on Solid Snake, who turns into a semi-philosopher king at the end of MGS2. Um, But it is supposed to be something of a reflection on the humanity going on. This game is not quite as steeped in the genetic themes as the previous uh, Metal Gears, but I think there is something to the fact that Jack is authentic and not, you know, GMO or devised in a lab. We mentioned that Snake himself is just cool and self-assured, but without any of that backstory. And again, that even more so allows for that self-insert of the player. You know, talking about problems that Solid Snake has as a character, it's it's not like Solid Snake is a perfect character. He's one of the best characters in the history of the medium. I think it's deliberately one of the, the, probably the core theme of the series is that war grinds you down, like it, it dehumanizes you. And the people you like, it it just makes you less of a person. Mm-hmm. That's that's at least that's, that's like Solid Snake's main characterization. Yes, <laughs> is that he's become less human because of all the war, he, all the wars he's had to fight. And this this game is a nice set point by point examination of how that happens to someone. I think, mm-hmm. and that leads nicely into like the next theme I want to talk about with Naked Snake, and that's the theme of pacifism, or something that we've talked about quite extensively with Kojima, especially with the previous games. The thing he co-invented here, close quarters combat, is 
mostly non-lethal for the most part. It's mostly about take uh, takedowns, disarming people. Um, there are like knife holds and slitting people's throats, but uh, for the most part, all the CQC we see is mostly about disarming and incapacitating uh, soldiers as opposed to um, killing them. And throughout the game, we actually see that Snake generally leaves soldiers alive. He leaves Ocelot alive. Um, no one actually dies at Snake's hands in a cutscene, except you know, one, which we'll we'll get to that in a second. Um, playing the game pacifistically also yields the best results and worthwhile rewards. Um, something we mentioned that, you know, they kind of started playing with this in Metal Gear Solid 2, but there aren't that many rewards to really be had from it. Um, this game starts really rewarding you for playing non-lethally. Um, and it also begins Big Boss's journey as a recruiter, a savior for soldiers, not their doom or their end, but, you know, some place where he can provide a heaven or a haven for them. Um, and it's also supposed to make us, the player, double take. Weren't we sold Big Boss as more of a big bad war criminal, threatened the world type in the story previously? You know, it's all that stuff kind of setting the wheels in motion for the greater narrative of the Metal Gear saga. And of course, all this non-lethal play, going through all the cutscenes without actually killing someone, not killing anyone but the Cobra unit, all of that can play into the fact that you have to kill the boss at the end. Uh, one way or another, Snake has to pull that trigger that kills her, uh, whether you do it yourself or you like wait out the three minutes it takes for the game to pull it for you. Um, there, If you do the game non-lethally, she is technically the only person you kill you know, directly because technically the Cobra unit dies by their micro bombs. They all self-destruct. Yes. Yeah. It just, it, it reinforces the themes and it's setting up the fall of big boss is just what I wanted to finish with. Yeah. I wanted to say real quick, just as an aside that uh, it's important to know that this is comic book uh, pacifism. Like he can, him it's, it's, you know, uh, slamming someone down by their head and rendering them unconscious for 10 minutes at a time, which in real life uh, you kills people. It, it's comic book logic to where like as long as you're not as long as you're not deliberately killing someone you can be a pacifist like batman yes it's like batman batman does not kill but he does uh just slam crooks down off a two-story building headfirst into a trash can but as long as he doesn't deliberately slit their throats they're fine they wake up with uh, you know horrible spinal injuries i'm assuming <laughs> And he, I mean, honestly, yesterday I was literally tweeting about how a lot of the weapons we call non-lethal, uh, you know, like, yeah. quote unquote, rubber bullets and tasers and tear gas, all very much can kill. So yeah. um, whenever we say things like, oh, this is non-lethal, like a stun grenade can kill you or blind you or deafen you. Um, you know, these are things that cause real harm to real people. We're not implying that, you know. This wouldn't hurt in real life. Please don't try this at home, kids, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's like you said, it's comic book. As long as you're not killing someone or stabbing them, specifically in a stab point that kills. Or shooting them. Or like you know, because like because that that's sort of I You do get shot. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think that's that's where Kojima really like it's it's more satisfying to play these games without using guns mm -hmm. by design, I think is the is is the idea. And that that alone, that counts for something in video games. Like that is that is a level of pacifism that you don't see very often in, in the medium, which is very gun based and gun right. focused. Um, I think I mentioned in the previous episode that for me, all bets are off once I get the handkerchief and the sig spray, because um, then I use those weapons to get in close on soldiers, knock them out, CQC. Um, I really love that, and I can clear out a map just doing that, um, and then save my suppressor and my ammo for when I actually do need it. Uh, so. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. And this is the game where it really starts to get fun in the million. Um, it's not quite MGS5 levels of different ways you can fuck with people, but you have so many more options uh, to get around without using a gun in this game. And the last thing I wanted to talk about in terms of themes with Naked Snake, it, or probably more specifically Big Boss here, is myth-making. Uh, the legend of Big Boss has been part of every game before this, and we're trying to determine how far apart are the fact and the fiction, um, which would again be explored in Peace Walker and MGSV as well. And we're trying to, you know, explore the story of a legendary soldier, which would become the story of a legendary mercenary, and maybe parsing what th the difference between those two things. Um, and that taps in once again to American governments using soldiers as pawns. They give him the title of D Big Boss, despite the title that the whole thing's a farce. It was set up for him to win. 
Um, and the government will use the name of Big Boss as America's greatest soldier in the coming years, while Big Boss is actually hung out to dry by the American government, and Big Boss himself despises the main U.S. branch, or U.S. brass. And, of course, they did the same pretty much to Solid Snake. They praised him publicly because he was a big hero after the Shadow Moses incident, but he revealed quite a bit of what was going on behind the scenes with the Patriots, so they tried to destroy him privately, setting up the Tinker incident. And this is very much real world how we generally treat veterans and soldiers. And we're in the times of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, you know, post 9-11 and into the war on terror here. And we're really, you know, seeing that ramp up again uh, with the number of soldiers that are coming home uh, hurt and not being treated well. And all this myth-making stuff uh, makes me think of one of my favorite movies and what is this podcast, if not a chance for me to shout my favorite things at you. Um, it's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which is uh, old John Ford Western, uh, one of the great uh, Western directors, one of the great directors of all time, at least in uh, Hollywood. And The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is all about everyone thinks this man who would go on to become senator was the man who killed this uh, outlaw named Liberty Valance, but it was actually John Wayne's character who did it from the shadows. Um, but, you know, it all kind of boils down to this... Uh, quote at the end when it says, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. And what we know from the previous games is the legend of Big Boss, but we don't actually know who the man was, the fact was, um, other than very few snippets and games that most Americans didn't get to play. So what should I call you? Hmm. You know, let's just use Zero, like we've been doing all along. All right, then. Major Zero it is. We'll start over from square one. From Square Zero. Next, we'll get into Major Zero, voiced by Jim Pedock. With all apologies to the boss, Major Zero is the most central character to the saga introduced in this game. Major Zero, aka David O, or O, and briefly Major Tom, is essentially the central antagonist of the Metal Gear saga. At times, more puppeteer than antagonist, but Zero founds the Patriots, first as a secret cabal of American power brokers, and then later as the massless power of the Patriot AIs. Like Big Boss, we'll go over his arc as we go through the games, but highlight foreshadowing, groundwork, and anything else that will sharpen our analysis. Let's start with the name David O. A couple of things to glean here. David is the name of Solid Snake, which you can interpret as Zero giving the best clone his own name. And Zero is modeled after real-life David Sterling, who founded the British Special Air Service, or SAS, and went by the codename Phantom Major. Hmm. The lingua franca Metal Gear rears its head yet again. Zero has a very similar background and love of special forces like Sterling. The last name offers a bit more. O, of course, is just another way to say zero, but also turns into the interjection of the word O into something more ambiguous, especially when uttered by Skullface or Kaz or Paz in later games. They'll say things like, oh, that's what's going on, and it's unclear whether they're <laughs> you know, talking to zero in some sense or just saying that out loud. The name Zero was a common HQ call sign for British military, and also just means empty, which could refer to the soullessness of the world as it would be under Zero's control. It's very much nothing, but something presupposes nothing, and a system built on ones will always assume the existence of Zero. Oh, we're getting into it. <laughs> the most ridiculous speech in all of Metal Gear. I love it. I can't wait to watch it again. <laughs> His brief stint as Major Tom during Virtuous Mission is Kojima just referencing his favorite things. David Bowie is the implied one here, as Major Tom is a character in several songs, including the two considered for this game, Space Oddity and Ashes to Ashes. Space Oddity specifically ties into some of the aerospace themes in this game and has eerie similarities to the boss's description of going to space. And then the game itself explains the reference to the tunnel in World War II epic The Great Escape. Oh, and while we're on World War II epics, there's the Guns of Navarone. Zero's voice performance mimics James Robertson Justice's Commander Jensen, who is even called a philosopher by one of his lone lieutenants during the movie. Visual design now. 
Zero has a scar over his left eye, which creates a symmetry or opposition to Big Boss's right eye wound. In this game, he's depicted in a bomber jacket, as was the style at the time. <laughs> and again, invoking the great escape, it's similar to Steve McQueen's jacket in the film. Real quick, I had to look this up. Uh, I wanted just to shout out Jim Piddick because he does uh, one of my favorite. Uh, so apparently when the Coen brothers did their release their, their director's cut of Blood Simple, which is like when they were like becoming the two of the biggest filmmakers, uh, people wanted the DVD release of their first movie, Blood Simple. He actually does the director's commentary instead of them. Jim Piddick is hired to be, he's a fictional film historian, Kenneth Loring. And he spends the entire time just doing like the most officious, important, like museum British accent he can do. And just talking about how great the Coens are and how wonderful they are. And just like having a bunch of fake stories about how they made the movie and how they like, uh, they, you know, a bunch of stuff like they, they took the cameras up, up a hill, both ways, 15 miles to film this movie because they, didn't want to do a director's commentary. In fact, they've only done one actual director's commentary. And that is because Billy Bob Thornton forced them to do the one for the movie he was in for them. Um, they like, they famously don't like talking about their movies. So they, yeah, they hired, they hired, it was Jim Piddick. I, I knew, cause I watched it once and I was like, where do I know this person's voice from? And after like 10 or 15 minutes, I had this weird flash of, of, cause he starts doing a lot of the, uh, the major, the major zero voice in it. But yeah, I just like to shout that out because I think that's one of my favorite, weird uh casting things like i where do they see him from what was he in that they pretty sure it wasn't metal gear solid 3 uh that, that that's that's remarkable uh i i had no idea about any of that i've only seen the blood simple that was on hbo max last year that's the that's the same one that's the director's cut okay but they don't have the commentary on that obviously Right, right. So I did not know that exists, but I will track that down. I am a big Coen Brothers fan, which isn't really saying much. It's, you know, I'm a big fan of Steven Spielberg here, you know, big, yeah. big film nut. But uh, no, that's cool as shit. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fast food guy. You know, I like McDonald's a lot. Like <laughs> Food, big fan, food. Big, I like oxygen. Big, big fan of oxygen, converting it to carbon dioxide. Uh, getting into the themes and concepts uh, behind Zero, uh, we kind of mentioned above that, you know, Zero as a philosophy or as a concept of emptiness or nothing. And we'll work with that as we continue through the games with Big Boss because he'll take on other names like Cypher that kind of have the same meaning. Um, he represents the kingmaker that is the intelligence state. Um, given all our previous discussions about American imperialism and intelligence and the CIA and all that, and future games explicitly making the CIA the bad guys, making Zero the source of all ills kind of makes sense here. And it's kind of how the meme of imperialism was carried forward or passed on from the British Empire to the U.S. Empire uh, following uh, World War II. Zero's also meant to act as a foil to Big Boss. As a legend to everyone from Solid Snake to Campbell to Sniper Wolf, Big Boss would need someone major to oppose in his own stories. Uh, whereas Big Boss is your superhero, uh, Zero is the man in the chair. Um, and they both have their own unique relationship with the boss. Um, you know, Zero served alongside the boss in World War II. Um, I apologize because I know keeping straight when I'm talking about big boss Jack and, you know, the boss as in the joy or the bad guy or the enemy. At, God, I don't want to call her any of those things. Uh, the antagonist at the end of this game. Um, I'll try to keep clear for you guys going forward. I'll mostly just say snake. Yeah, I'll try to keep it a snake. Um, and, you know, much of the story from here on out with Metal Gear Solid is going to be the way that Zero and Snake differently interpret the boss's dream or the boss's will or what have you. And, you know, it's also one of those things where um, Zero ends up being uh, kind of like behind the scenes. You know, the Patriot AIs are things that kind of are massless, formless, exist um, beyond like just kind of a physical being. He's always supposed to be a man behind the shadows where Big Boss has always been the symbol that American imperialism holds up. Uh, Zero's like the evil mind behind it, not seeing the deep state, but I hate invoking that just because of the way the discourse has taken that phrase um, because it is very much a real thing, just not the way that most people talk about it. Um, and then, of course, he is um, the founder of the FOX unit alongside the boss. Uh, FOX actually stands for Force Operation X, uh, specialized in solo infiltration weapons and equipment, mostly on-site procurement. Um, Naked Snake would be the first agent for the FOX unit. 
Um, uh, Fox will have its own phantom in the form of Zoff, which is X Operation Force, which shows up in the form of Skullface and MGSV. And then the formation of Foxhound later will be formed to combat a rogue Fox unit um, from the early 70s, which kind of semi-canonically happens in Metal Gear Solid Portable Ops. Hello, Snake. I'm Paramedic. Nice to meet you. Paramedic. As in a medic who comes in by parachute. Aren't you going to tell me your real name? Are you going to tell me yours, Mr. Snake? Next, we'll get into Paramedic, voiced by Heather Halley. Also known as Dr. Clark, who was obliquely referenced in MGS1 as the one who developed the procedure that was used to save, or damn, Gray Fox. She would end up being a founding member of the Patriots with Snake and Zero and Sigint. She was recruited by Zero to join the CIA and would work on the Les Enfants Terrible project and would end up Foxhound's medical specialist. Paramedic gets her name from her desire to create a team of parachuting medics to provide aid in battle. And also, she may just be a weeb. Uh, her love of Japanese films, sushi, instant noodles, sake, she's a weeb. Paramedic plays on the same themes as Sokolov and Huey and Otacon in terms of the scientist who is roped into doing harm, though she may have been more willing than the others. This is not really a major, thr major thrust of her here in this game. So instead, let's talk about some of the movies she mentions. It's a movie. You haven't seen it? So I'm going to go ahead and list all the movies that I got Paramedic to talk about uh, during my most recent playthrough of MGS3. Um, we will just stop and mention anything we want to about any of these movies. I'm pretty sure it's close to all of the movies. I just did not run it across the total list of movies mentioned by Paramedic. So the movie she mentions includes It Came From Outer Space, Godzilla, which is a movie I love. You should go back to the 1954, 56, whatever it is. The initial Godzilla rules from Russia with love, which, you know, go back to two episodes ago <laughs> where we extensively talked about how much that rules. Forbidden Planet, uh, On the Beach, which I want to shout out. I haven't seen the movie On the Beach, but but I've read the novel On the Beach by Neville Shute. It's about um, the world has already been destroyed basically by nuclear war, but Australia hasn't been consumed by the nuclear fallout from all the clouds and you know stuff. Um, so it's basically the story of people on like living on a beach as the nuclear fallout rolls in and kills the last of humanity. Um, it's a really great novel. I would recommend checking it out. I will look for the movie myself. Going on, The War of the Worlds, uh, referring to the original movie, not uh, the more recent Steven Spielberg version. And not, and not the 1930s uh, radio hellfight. Yes, uh, which though uh, I believe Paramedic does mention when, you talk, when she talks about War of the Worlds. Yeah, yeah. But like you, you'd have to. Yes. If you were explaining what that movie is. Uh, it is probably the most important uh, historical what, artifact of that original mm -hmm. story. Uh, the Last War. For a Fistful of Dollars, which is the uh, first entry in the Man with No Name trilogy, um, the first like great Clint Eastwood Western, um, and it's also based off Akira Kurosawa's Yojimbo, uh, which is basically the same story but set in medieval Japan as opposed to uh, the West in the U.S. Uh, them, Jason and the Argonauts, uh, Dr. Strangelove, which I just adore that movie, Guns of Navarone, another great World War II epic we've mentioned a couple times. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Beast from Beneath the Phantoms. My Mother Was a Teenage Spider Queen from Mars, which I will highlight as a movie that Paramedic herself says she actually hasn't seen. <laughs> uh, she's just like, have you ever seen it, Snake? And he's like, nope. And she's like, me neither. Bye. Um, North by Northwest, which is a, a Alfred Hitchcock classic. Uh, Rebecca, which when uh, she tells you about the movie Rebecca, paramedic talks about how when she was young, her parents would take her to a movie every night or uh, once a week, and that would develop her love of movies. Uh, but that's actually Kojima's story, his experience. Uh, his parents would take him to movies, and then they'd come home and talk about them. So, uh, The Blob. Uh, invasion of the Body Snatchers, which uh, there's actually some fun stuff with that one. Snake questions uh, the concept of body doubles, you know, joking at the whole clone thing. And uh, Paramedic goes on to talk about, you know, super soldier genes, uh, which is kind of the start of the Les Enfants Terribles project. Uh, Alamo, Curse of the Werewolf, The Thing, which the 
pre-John Car- Carpenter version, which I had to double check. I didn't realize that the thing was a remake. Yep. Or, I mean, it's several remakes now, but I think the one that Kojima obviously loves is the John Carpenter one. Um, but I'm sure he likes the uh, original one just as well. Um, Frankenstein and then Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Uh, anything you want to say about these movies before we move on from paramedic? I, I like that snake for the most part has no interest in like the realistic spy movies. Like he, he, I don't think he understands what James Bond is, but like he, he, he thinks, he thinks from Russia with love, like they describe it as like this gritty spy thriller. And he's just like not interested at all because that's what his life is. But he is a lot more interested in like Jason and the Argonauts. Uh, I think 20,000 leagues. He's like, well, that's not interesting. Like it's, it's just a nice sign of like a, a he has taste and, he the more escapist movies are what, are what snake is into i think the concepts but like it's also like it's just he has taste he has he has his own personal taste of like things he likes and things he doesn't like even if he doesn't have time to go see movies that often i feel like that's just a nice bit of characterization for him and if you think about it, it would make sense for someone who's seen as much shit as he has mm-hmm. to not really want to you know, go home and watch war movies as much as he would enjoy seeing something that's just crazy and a little bit sci-fi or, um, you know, something like, something outside of the realms of reality he knows. I'm literally just thinking this, but Major Zero likes a lot of those war movies, and maybe that's supposed to be a deliberate characterization of him as someone who doesn't actually... Like, if you buy into him as, like, the villain, a villainous character in the future, as someone who doesn't really... Uh, has, a, has a problem, like, personifying the things he orders like he doesn't really consider the human costs of these things and he doesn't really understand soldiers and the way that big boss obviously does or he will he will as big boss maybe that's a bit of characterization i wouldn't be surprised if that was deliberate yeah i think that's a great characterization because again it's also just the fact that he's supposed to be the foil of big boss Mm -hmm. um so him having almost the exact opposite uh, aesthetic taste or artistic taste um, is just another way that they can show that without telling you that. Um, and he, you know, the James Bond uh, movie discussion is one where he actually jumps in on your conversation with paramedic. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't really do it for anything else, which, you know, there's all sorts of things you can read into that, but I really love the fact that I never realized. Well, he likes the great escape too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's, he, I love this observation. I think that's great. I wonder if maybe it's supposed to be that, like he he thinks that they're in a war movie, like that's what he wants it to be. And whereas Snake understands the reality of the situation is, it's not something that you should be enjoying or taking pleasure in. Yeah, I don't know. It's just it just came to me as we were talking about those movies. Snake, what's up? Why are you naked? I know there's a naked option under uniform that lets you take off the upper part of your uniform. But without a shirt on, your camouflage sucks, and your stamina goes down faster. You don't get any advantages whatsoever. Sure there are. Like what? It feels good. Man, you do whatever you want. I will, thanks. Just one question, though. What? Is there a way to take off my pants? Say what? So now Sigint, voiced by James C. Mathis III. We know who Sigint becomes, hell, we say it every episode. Yes, Sigint is Donald Anderson, who we kinda not really met in Metal Gear Solid as the DARPA chief, well, decoy octopus pretending to be him. This game is relatively cagey about Sigint's fate, with a clue in the timeline following the game's end revealing he would go on to join ARPA and develop the ARPANET. And yes, he's also a founding member of the Patriots. His creation of the internet's predecessor surely led to the Patriots' information control in later stories. SIGINT, the term, is signals intelligence, or intelligence gathered by intercepting signals, whether human, communications, or electronic, aka between two systems. This was a key vector of intelligence and counterintelligence at the time, having emerged during the World Wars and becoming central to espionage during the Cold War. It's very much more that that nittier, grittier spy stuff like the John Le Carré novels than the bigger bombastic stuff of a James Bond uh, movie. From a leaked character sheet, we know Sigint's design was based on several Will Smith characters because, you know, Kojima's a movie simp. Uh, he's depicted as proud and boisterous, seems like a fun guy to be around. Uh, Snake and Sigint uh, share a fascination with weapons and equipment, and you can feel a real enthusiasm when the two get into it. Sigint was a whiz kid with technology, but couldn't land a job when Zero discovered and recruited him for Fox. From there, Sigint would go on to be a sort of Tony Stark, 
sorry, in that a lot of key technology in the Metal Gear universe is created by him. Uh, and that includes small-scale tech like Snake's anti-personnel equipment and detectors, the Rykoff mask in your inventory, and the Easy Gun, which is a non-lethal, infinite ammo, infinite suppressor weapon you can uh, earn if you beat the game while collecting all plants and animals uh, in the maps. And then he also invents a ton of massive or far-reaching technology like ARPANET, the Peace Walker weapons, the Patriot AIs, or Metal Gear Rex. The best part about Sigint in MGS3 is that if you equip different weapons or camouflage and just give him a call, Sigint will give you the details on the design and history of your equipment. It's great just for the sake of the real-world research behind it, and you get to hear Snake and Sigint geek out as mentioned before. And if you happen to be in a cardboard box... Uh, Snake, what are you doing? Sigint also comments on technology you come across in the field, like Eva's knockoff Mauser, the hovercrafts, and the helicopters, which Snake, Sigint, and Zero will canonically name the Hind in this game. With the hovercrafts, it is neat, though, that even though it's not real-world tech, the ideas behind it very much are, and Kojima's team pulls all that info for you. After you meet Granin, you'll also have a fun conversation poking fun at the central Mac to the entire franchise. Uh, when Snake tells Sigint about a bipedal nuclear tank called Metal Gear, Sigint laughs it off as outlandish and impractical, which to me just reads as the creator is acknowledging the absurdity of it and reveling in that, not unlike Paramedic and the body s- invasion of the Body Snatchers uh, bit we mentioned earlier. I like the... Um... It's not something the game does a whole lot, doing like the obvious references to the later entries. The only the only exception is like that's like Ocelot's like half his dialogue is that, <laughs> but everyone loves Ocelot, so it's fine. It's it's but that's like a lazy kind of writing. Like it's one thing to be like this is the origin of this specific weird thing, like his eye patch. That's fine. It's another thing. This is a thing a lot of prequels do. The uh, I mean, Star Wars prequels are notorious for it, just being like wink, wink, nudge, nudge kind of dialogue. And like the fact that it's all, it's most, I think it's with everyone who isn't Ocelot, it's all in Codex. And I think that's fine. Like you have to go, you have to want to see that stuff basically. So I, I think that's, that's, that's a, a good way to handle that sort of fan servicey mentions of things that uh, prequels are so notorious for doing. Yeah. And I think it's also worth noting that like we mentioned, this was supposed to be the end of the Metal Gear Solid yeah. trilogy for Kojima. So he, him taking some pot shots at it, at it, thinking he would not come back for several more titles. Um, you can kind of understand being in that place at that time, whereas it, you know, kind of plays differently when he would still go on to make several more. It's not, it's not overwrought. Like it, it, there's, there's, there's a, I can't think of them now, but there's a lot of examples of, of prequels doing wait, just way too much of that kind of stuff to like an annoying extent. And it's it's like lazy writing, but like yeah, this is this is a perfectly acceptable amount of it for me. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's Ocelot is do in the main game, it's mostly Ocelot who does it, and like he can pretty much say whatever he wants, like nobody cares. Like he's given a leeway that, as I think the most beloved character in the series, he's given leeway to do that stuff in, in a way that other characters just wouldn't get. Mm-hmm. So that gets us to the big shitty ending of this episode. (laughs) Like literal shit. Exclusively in PlayStation 2 versions of this game, there was a secret dream sequence you can unlock if you save and quit during your imprisonment at Groznygrad. If you'd load up that save file, you would find yourself playing Guy Savage, a zombie hack and slash game directed by Shuyo Murata. I unlocked this once during my first playthrough, and I was... Utterly baffled. I didn't know if my save file had corrupted or I had loaded something different. Um, but it is literally you're running around in a like it looks like a giant warehouse uh, room, but like the walls are kind of like melting. It's very surreal, um, and it's just a slasher. It's just a bunch of zombie-like things are showing up, and you just take them out with the sword. And then after a certain amount of time or zombie kills, you'll return to Snake in his jail cell. When he speaks to Sigint of his bad dream. Sigint decides to share his own worst dream. It's absolutely bonkers, and we will just end today's episode with letting you hear the clip in full. Well, let me tell you about the absolute worst, most sickening nightmare I ever had. This isn't one for the kids. 
Okay, so there's this big pile of crap, right? It's shaped like a giant tank and it's walking around on two legs, going on a rampage and stomping on people and houses and stuff. And this giant turd is carrying the nastiest missiles you ever saw. Like, whenever it launches one of its turd missiles, whatever it hits, people, trees, buildings, turns into shit. My hometown, my old school, my family, my girlfriend, old man John, everything in that turd's path turned into shit. That's pretty sick, man. Good thing it was just a dream, huh? Yes, that's a good thing. You feeling better now? Yeah. So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontieres at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm still Brian. Bye. I forgot what my thing was. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, remember, you have a way to fall. Son, you've got a way to fall. They'll tell you where to go. But they won't know Son You'd better take it all They'll tell you what they know